Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. All right. I think we are now live. So uh, welcome, everybody. I see there's a lot of people in the house tonight. Um, I guess, I guess Dasha, uh, has drawn a large crowd. That's always uh, nice to see. And, uh, I will, I actually, it's okay. Dasha, they can hear you. So just hang tight. It's also kind of interesting. So no, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm just going to give everyone a little bit of an introduction. And then I actually have Dasha on the line right here. So we will very, uh, rapidly move to talking with Dasha, but real quick, I just, for my audience, I want to give a, a, just a little bit of, uh, a welcome and a housekeeping. Uh, just a little bit of news I want to share with people. The first thing is I'm doing like a big campaign to get really cool people on to talk with me. And I have a few new people confirmed. I just want to let you know what's com- coming down the pike of my little live stream podcast thing. The first is um, I talked with Peter Hallward, who is a professor and a scholar of Deleuze. He's a philosopher in his own right. And uh, really cool guy. He wrote a book called Out of This World about Deleuze. It's like one of the best recent books about Deleuze. And he's a really smart guy who I've admired for a long time. So uh, he has confirmed he's going to do the live stream. He's a little busy right now, so he won't be on anytime too soon. But you can expect Peter Hallward to come on not in the not-too-distant future. Also, um, this guy, Jonathan Pagu, or Pagu, or I don't know how you pronounce it, but he's been recommended to me many times. He's interested in kind of Orthodox Christian symbology. And apparently he's like quite popular. People have suggested him to me many times. I've talked with him and uh, it sounds like he's game to do it also. So that'll be in the not too distant future. Uh, yeah. So that's that for now. Uh, huge thanks to the patrons. As always, I try to be like grateful for that. Um, as you all can see, uh, this is, we are now using a much more technically sophisticated operation. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, ben, my assistant and I have had to Google a million questions over the past two days, trying to get this rig set up uh, in a reliable and high quality way but i think we've we've got it uh if there are any audio or video issues uh definitely let us know in the uh in the chat ben and i will be monitoring that so if one of us is speaking too loud or the other is speaking too soft or whatever the case might be uh or the video drops out or the, something goes out of sync or whatever just let us know in the chat and we'll be monitoring that so uh yeah i don't want to keep you waiting any longer i think we should just uh cut to it shall we so Ben, switch to the scene with uh, that shows Dasha's picture. You see, we, you see, we have this very, very tricky live streaming rig now. So, uh, Dasha, welcome to my live stream. Thank you so much for coming to hang out with me. Hi, thanks for having me. So, yeah, absolutely, ha- happy to have you. So, a common motif of my live stream show is that I very often speak with people who I actually know very little about, and. But I'm kind of trying to take this a little bit more seriously. And so now I'm doing a little bit more due diligence on like the people I actually hang out with. So you might be happy to hear that I spent a couple hours last night actually listening to Red Scare. I, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, it was I enjoyed it. It's not the type of podcast I would listen to. Just per, just being honest, that's just a temperamental personality thing. Right. right. But um, I definitely after well, I got high at like 10 p.m. and then I walked 
to the bar that's like a mile away and or more than a mile away. And so that and I walked slow to listen to it then. And then I listened to it a little bit more at the bar. And then I, I listened to it on the way home and then a little bit more this morning. And I definitely, although it's not the type of media that I listen to, I mean, frankly, I don't, I just don't have time to listen to that much stuff. So I actually don't listen to that many podcasts myself, but I never listen to podcasts. Do you not? <laughs> no. Interesting. Did you listen to podcasts before you started one or you're just like, this seems like a fun idea? Um, I listened to come town, I guess, but I, I just don't have like a commute or any like menial labor that I do that. <laughs> yeah. Podcasts. Fits in, fits in like my lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. You need something that uh, has a lot of dead time to it, like long walks or going to the gym or something like that. But anyway, what I did kind of understand about your podcast is I, I was able to, after a few hours, I was able to kind of get into the mindset of like people who would like that type of show. Like I kind of, I think I understand, I think I understand the kind of social aesthetic uh, experience that you provide people. Do you have a sense of like why people like your show or like what they get out of it? Like, do you have a, do you have a mental model of your kind of median listener and, and what they're like and why they like it? Um, well, it's parasocial, obviously right. I, that people get used to the sound of someone's voice and their personality. Um, and the hot takes, you know, um, I think most like from our live shows, most of our fans are either like college age girls or gay guys, which is a demographic I'm very happy with. Is that right? College age girls or gay guys? Yeah. I always wondered if this is not too frank and forward to be asking right off the bat. I've always wondered if like how much of your audience is like straight dudes who like, you know, have a thing for you and Anna. I don't know. Do you think you don't think you don't think? No, I'm sure that's part of it. But a median listener, I think, is probably either gay or a girl. Okay, that's okay. I mean, a man, a lot of straight guys don't really like the sound of women's voices. Really? And when we started, we had a lot of feedback that um, our vo- our vocal fry was, you know, <laughs> distasteful or whatever. Oh, I didn't even I didn't notice anything particularly hard to listen to about your voices. I, did you just say you think straight guys don't like listening to women's voices? Yeah. See, that's interesting. I would hypothesize the opposite. As as a social scientist, I mean, I don't have data on this, but my social scientific. Uh, intuitions are that men, if given a choice, would rather listen to a female voice than a male voice. That's a, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it depends, maybe. Because if you look at like YouTube, I think like women do especially well on YouTube. I think. Um, like with Samar and stuff. Right. Like that's one exact. That's a kind of extreme case of yeah, uh, straight men enjoying <laughs> the voices of women. But even just like uh, by default, if you do like if you look at like a a technology reviewer type of person and two people who yeah. are of equal quality. If one of them is a woman, a woman, I think they tend to do a little bit better. Again, I don't know that for sure, but that's my intuition. You can also see them. And right. I think the disembodied uh, voice is maybe less appealing. Well, especially, you know, with something like vocal cry, you know, that's a very gendered thing. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay. I don't even know too much about that. That's interesting. So, okay. So that, that's just an interesting uh, bit of data. So your audience is not, hugely composed of straight dudes who like want to get with you guys. That's yeah. I don't think so. Interesting. Cause I, I always, I always I'm wondered sure what's that. I'm sure they're out there. Right. But, um, from like doing live performances and stuff and people like people who come up to me and maybe straight guys are less likely to approach me, but usually it's like a girl or 
a gay guy. Right. Now, what about this phenomenon of the reply guy? Now, is the reply guy, is that a significantly overlapped population with the the patron and audience base? Or are these like two different groups of people? Like, Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to tell. Yeah. I find my reply guys to be humiliating. Really? <laughs> So but, I try not to mm. engage with them too much. But you don't have any intuition about how many of those reply guys are like paying patrons? Um, I would guess not many. Interesting. Okay. But they're just participating in like a, a Twitter culture. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, these are the types of kind of sociological questions I'm very interested in when it comes to like internet fans, media. You know, or they're like Comtown fans and they don't. Right. They're just Right. On. right. Okay, cool. So we don't we don't have to talk about the demographic data of your <laughs> podcast for too long. But it, it is something that I'm, I'm very interested in. I, for my own part, like, I don't know if you have found this, but have you found that like, by doing a podcast type of thing, you kind of learn, like when people respond to it, or people tell you like, Oh, you should talk to this person, or uh, you just see the types of people who like your content. In a weird way, do you find that like you kind of learn something about yourself that way? You're kind of like, oh, so these are the types of people who listen to me. These are the types of people who like me. And it's, sometimes it's not what you would expect. Have you ever had those types of realizations or no? Sure. Yeah. I mean, type of people listen to your podcast. It's a really good question. And I actually, as I said, I'm, I'm, I have a social science background. And I, I so I do a lot of data analysis and stuff like that. It's just kind of second nature to me to try to get data on stuff and understand things through data. So I actually do have quite a good bit of data on my audience. I actually do know who for the most part likes my stuff. And it's mostly um, men in their twenties with a technology or kind of software development type of background. That's like the median viewer or listener of my show is, is, is a young man in their twenties who does some type of technology related work, but there is a lot of variation. Like there are definitely some uh, older men, um, it is mostly men. There are some women. There are some women. There's actually, um, I think, uh, a, a disproportionate number of trans women who follow who follow my stuff and like join my Discord server. Um, yeah. So there's a small number of women, but admittedly not too many. And it's kind of yeah. What I thought was interesting is like because people have tr- told me to try to get you on for a long time. Like there's a bunch of people who are always requested. You, you, you and Anna are one of them. And. Uh, I find this to be a very interesting thing. Like when people tell me you should go talk with X because then I go look, I go look them up and I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. And then I'll like listen to their stuff and I'll kind of be able to sense or I'll learn by listening. Like what are the dimensions that we have in common? You know what I mean? So like listening to listening to red scare last night and this morning, um, I, I was like trying to figure out what is the common denominator that like makes people place me with you guys or whatever. And I guess it's mostly just um, talking shit and like kind of like saying stuff. Like, I think there's a major cleavage in the media culture today around like people who try to be really professional and like on point and they like, they're very educated and they know what's what and, you know, it's professional and polished. And then there's like a totally different world and a totally different like experience, a kind of like media experience, which is just like people saying whatever they want and not really caring and not really knowing if what they're saying is true, but they just kind of like, make a lot of guesses and talk shit. And that's kind of like the vibe you guys have. Is that right? Yeah. It's a very punk ethos. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. It's a medium that lends itself to that sort of the way like blogs used to be Mm. kind of an expressive free space. 
Definitely, definitely. And I think for you guys, it seems like it's the social, it's the social hangout vibe. You feel like you're like hanging out with you guys in this kind of relaxed, like friendly environment. And that's a very different type of performance or a different type of experience than like the news and politics podcasts where it's like people try to be smart. Like I, I just hate people who try to be smart all the time and try to be like super fancy. And that's just not my vibe. So I guess that's a, that's a common denominator, but I guess part of the fun of this conversation is we'll try to figure out like, what is, what is the underlying thing? Right. The com- social commentary. Right. Right. I guess so. Like a relaxed social, like uh, relaxed social commentary and political commentary that doesn't try to be too serious. I guess that's kind of the, the common vibe. So I guess we could get a little bit more into some interesting substantive issues by diving into this like Catholicism question, if that's a good place for you to start. So basically, I know very little about you, but I do know that people have been telling me that you've been becoming more Catholic in some way. And so I wonder if maybe we could have an interesting discussion about this. If you could just kick us off by telling us, like, in a nutshell, what what exactly has been the recent development in your life that has to do with you and Catholicism? Um, well, I started attending Latin Mass for the invitation of some of the, like, weird Catholic Twitter people. And when did you, like, start getting more into Catholicism? Well, okay, so I, <laughs> I read Marian Williamson's book, A Return to Love, which is about prayer and God. Um, and that's, so that's sort of how I came to praying. Uh, and I'm baptized. I'm actually baptized Catholic. Okay. Me too. So I wasn't, I didn't, was, wasn't raised in the church, but I was baptized and my mom is pretty religious. Okay. So it was something that was like accessible to me. Um, so Marian Williamson, I went to Montreal, mm. um, like a month, a month ago, more than a month ago now, two months ago. Um, and I went to St. Joseph's Oratory in Notre Dame there. I don't know. I just, it was like a confluence of factors. And then when I went to Latin mass, I cried a lot mm. and I, um, and then I met all of these lovely uh, Catholic Gen Zers, Zoomers. <laughs> um, and it just felt like as someone who's interested in like philosophy and, you know, I'm not like a super spiritual person, I suppose. I mean, I guess I am now, but, um, it just seemed like a, it seems like it has a nice like contemplative tradition that appeals to me. Yeah. And, right. On. Um, I think I'm going to return to the church in a more formal way. Right on. Yeah. I had a similar experience like about six months to a year ago. I mean, so would you kind of, just, would you say you kind of had like a conversion experience or no, just a kind of well, slow, gradual. Well, move. I was going to convert to Judaism. Really? Um, prior. And I was sort of, there's some like the preliminary stages of that, like meeting with rabbinical students and stuff like that. Really? And, um, I wear a, I wear a, uh, a cross across a crucifix <laughs> and they all um, would mention that I should probably take it off if I was serious at becoming Jewish. And I found that uh, psychologically I had a very hard time taking my cross off because I've worn it, you know, for my entire life. Hmm. So what made you want to convert to Judaism? Do you have like a long what, experience with that or what was the background there? A Jewish boyfriend. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and I, most of my boyfriends have been Jewish. And so I thought that there would be something in Judaism for me, maybe that, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's, because, you know, being Jewish is a very cultural thing. Mm-hmm. That's more what I was drawn to. And I was drawn to like the sense of community, you know, belonging to something. Mm. Yeah. For sure. The same things that like, you know, I'm finding in Catholicism, but. Right. So do you know much about Simone Weil? Yeah, I love Simone Weil. Okay, yeah, right on. I figured you would. You have a lot in common, it sounds like, in some well, sense. Well, she was anorexic as well. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but okay. <laughs> well, well, you know, well, I'm sure you, for audience members who don't know, I'm sure you know Dasha, but uh, yeah, she was a French Jew who basically became a Catholic, not formally a Catholic. She never formally kind she of... Never, she never yeah. she wanted to stay outside of the church. Yeah, but she was like very, very Catholic, essentially, and without formally entering the church. And uh, yeah, she she was amazing, amazing person and thinker and writer. And yeah, she was a revolutionary too. Like that, she's kind of one of my idols, I think, honestly, in terms yeah. of um, navigating that political and religious blend of being like a kind of militant, revolutionary, anarchist, communist type of person, and also being um, just like an extremely based, like radically based, uh, Catholic, kind of like Christian Catholic thinker and oh yeah Day as well what was that dorothy day mm. yeah i actually know less about her um are you a big fan i'm i mean i'm reading like selected writings of hers she wrote an autobiography that i don't have but she started the catholic worker here in new york sure and so she did a lot of like lefty catholic advocacy right right she's also i mean she's a beautiful writer she's not um is mystical as Simone. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But. For sure. Uh, more of a activist. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of curious to know, and honestly, people also ask me, me this kind of thing all the time. Like, I think people are curious to know, like how much of your uh, move to Catholicism is a kind of just like a kind of like cultural gesture because it's like, it's kind of cool or it just kind of feels good to you to be like part of a, a group versus a more kind of like specific and devout um, kind of like conversion to the whole, uh, you know, authentic like submission to the the church authority and, and all of that. Do you have a sense of that or you maybe you're, I mean, you don't necessarily need to be sure of it. Like I'm honestly not sure of it for myself. Yeah, so. It's still something I'm navigating. I think, you know, a lot of people think I'm being Catholic ironically, right. which is, true <laughs> but i think that with something like catholicism like i mean i think david foster wallace talks about this in reference to like aa um which is like has like a, you know a christian undercurrent mm-hmm. that it doesn't really matter if you're doing something ironically because it still works you know if i'm like i mean it seems right. insane to ask like ironically <laughs> right but I think if, even if you go to mass and you don't mean it if you continue to go to mass, things will happen to you regardless. Yeah, for sure. Or it's like what Pascal said about praying. Yeah. Uh, you know, Pascal said something to paraphrase him wildly. He said something to the effect that, um, you know, if you're not sure if you believe or if you're not sure like how to believe, just, uh, you know, start praying. Uh, even if you don't like mean it or feel it, um, you know, it's good enough to just start doing the thing. And then yeah. you, you slowly, you know, it kind of calibrates your mind and your body or something like that. Yeah, I had, I had for me, I just very briefly, I don't want to talk about myself too much in this, but uh, I, yeah, I, I was convert I like was confirmed and kind of raised Catholic and did the whole Sunday school thing and 
all that. And then like many young Catholic people kind of like dropped out of it as soon as I was allowed to, as soon as my mom like stopped making me go to church. Uh, but, right. th- but then like basically about, s- about eight, six months ago, a year ago was, I was like, you know, I just kind of felt myself kind of going back to it more. And so like, I went to confession for the first time in like 20 years. Um, yeah. I went what to, conf- was that like? Oh, it was awesome. I cried like crazy. And, uh, I had this like long laundry list. I like literally had to write down. Uh, I had to spend a lot of time like writing down like all the fucked up, all the fucked up shit I did over the past 20 years. And I brought in like a long list of paper, like a long paper list. And, uh, it felt awesome. It felt amazing. I cried a lot. And then I walked out feeling like, you know, it's, it's awesome. I love that shit. I think confession is like one of the most, um, it's one of the most misunderstood kind of religious cultural practices out there. Like people think it's like this weird, dark, morbid thing, but it's not, it makes so much sense psychologically and ethically, I think. And I love it. This is so private. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. I've never gone to con- see. I've never gone to confession, so I'm like <sighs> making. I have to base. I yeah. I can't. I don't want to go to normal confession hours because I've you know and waste everyone's time with a billion sins I've done. Yeah. So I sort of. But I'm yeah. I'm nervous about it. No, no, it's okay. They like it. They like when people come in with that long laundry list of sins that from like 20 years back. That's like I think you know if you're a priest that's like a pretty rare and awesome thing. You know, it's not like difficult or annoying. It's cool. Yeah. I just mean, I'm, yeah, I don't know. Like you're nervous. I'm scared to take a moral inventory, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Please. Not, I appreciate it. Yeah. Sorry. My neighborhood is <laughs> crime ridden. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Have you ever seen the movie Chinatown? Yeah. Is your life exactly like that now? it's more chinese it's very very chinese wow wow cool i'm looking at chinese flag building i live oh sorry no it's cool it's uh some local local flavor it's all right uh so do you think you will do confession or you're not sure i mean yeah i want to i want to um you know receive communion yeah um, so I have to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. My, so we, something we might talk about a little bit is like my one of the hangups I have with religion and Catholicism. And like, so I, I would say I'm straight up Catholic. Like I've kind of I've come to peace with it. And I, I for me, it's not ironic or anything. Like I'm not a particularly good Catholic, but I'm, I would just say I'm straight up Catholic. I, I, I'm happy to say that uh, in a simple way. But uh, I do have some kind of lingering, like unresolved questions or issues that maybe we can have an interesting discussion about. I'd love to hear like your opinion because you. You and I might be similar, like culturally in some sense, like things like doing drugs and like shoplifting are things that I kind of believe in and think it's not that bad. But when I talk about these things in public, Catholic people say like, oh, you're not a real Catholic. You can't you can't do these drugs and you can't do shoplifting if you're a real Catholic. Um, Do you have any like takes on that? Um, Well, I think shoplifting is just if you're stealing from like, I mean, I am a shoplifter as well. I learned this from your podcast. This is what, something think, like yeah. um, And I don't think stealing is like necessarily wrong. Yeah. You know, yada, yada, yada. If you're still in a corporation and stuff like that. Um, doesn't, isn't drinking pretty sanctioned by the, like, it seems like all the Catholics I know like to be drunk. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. I think, I think like moderate drinking is okay, but obviously like any type of excess. Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think doing any types of drugs to excess. I think definitely there are a lot of Catholics. Um, like, do you have this phenomenon where do you get like uh, 
critical aggressive tweets at you coming from like more like kind of like stiff-necked catholic types of people like reprimanding you for like being catholic or saying you're catholic and then promoting bad things i get a lot of that yeah definitely um (laughs) i get it well i get it from both i get it from secular people who think that i'm schizophrenic or having some kind of like psychotic break and that's (laughs) why i'm drawn to catholicism and then i get it less from catholics um just because I'm not very, like, I'm not super active on Catholic Twitter, I don't think. And I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, someone said, like, um, if these reply guys think they're going to convert the blonde one, <laughs> consider the fact that, like, not a single Catholic priest follows her and stuff like mm. that. And that I promote self-harm and, um, and, like, pornographic and stuff like that. Well, self-harm has a uh, magnificent Catholic tradition, right? I mean, all... Like that. <laughs> right i mean a lot of the saints were known for various forms of self-flagellation yeah. and you know the, so i think there's a, there's a case to, not to glorify you know quotidian forms of like you know hitting or hurting yourself or whatever but but there's something there and also yeah like things like anorexia also have a weird kind of like catholic background like a lot of the saints you know fasting as an obvious kind of religious thing and fasting quickly becomes um something like anorexia on, on some dimension i mean i think a lot of things are a desire for a communion with God. I was, um, yesterday I was looking a bunch of girls, cause I used to live in LA and a bunch of girls that I follow on Instagram are doing a new, like ancient Chinese thing called Gua Sha. Do you know what that is? No. It's like this, like massage that they do with like a stone that bruises your back mm. and they're, they're posting photos. They post. They post photos of like all these bruises all over their backs, and then they're also like obsessed with like health food. They're orthorexics, right? So they're oh. obsessed with being healthy, right? And they, um, and like purity, and like the rhetoric that they use, and this like extremely masochistic ritual that they're partaking in, really made me be like, oh, they should just be Catholic. Like, mm. if you want to like, mortify your flesh and like pontificate about purity, like. there's a place for you to do that you don't have to like do it under the guise of like being healthy (laughs) right right yeah would you say that just temperamentally do you have a strong taste for like suffering and pain yeah i mean i think that has to do with me being russian Hmm. and and catholic probably but Hmm. um yeah i think that enduring pain is a virtue i think i definitely have a death drive Mm. which is different Mm. right right well this is definitely a little segue into Lacan uh as I'm sure you know Lacan was a Catholic man himself and at least in I don't know um I saw someone tweet this at us but I don't know like what Lacan says about Catholicism well, most of his writings don't deal explicitly with it, but um, his mother was extremely devout, is my understanding. And I actually don't know too much about his biography. I don't know if he was, I don't, I don't know, like, if he went to church regularly, but I know his philosophy fairly well. And uh, I think it's a very Catholic philosophy. I think it's very easy to see because, you know, um, he's obviously very interested in things like lack, right? And I think, you know, as a Catholic, like, um, I like in my everyday life, I feel extraordinary forms of lack all the time. You know, it's like there's this kind of like there's like this void at the center of like most current kind of like socializing and kind of like quotidian bourgeois life. Um, I think you can. So that's like one, you know, uh, one aspect. But also 
you know, if you look at like his stuff on like the partial drives, um, you know, he definitely has a kind of theory of desire in which desire is this um, fairly empty, destructive kind of uh, incessantly repeating thing that never really finds its satisfaction. And to me, that's a very Catholic message. I mean, I completely, I, I can, that, that resonates a lot with me from a Catholic perspective. Like I do, well, I do tend to think that um, much of what we desire is kind of uh, wrapping itself around essentially meaningless things that we don't really desire. And this is why like in Catholicism, you know, one's desire, you know, the passions are the, are the source of great sin and, and evil, right? So it's like our base desires are where we have to be constantly looking for you know, various forms of traps and mistakes. And, you know, cause that, that our, our desire, our desires will lead us astray, will lead us to sin. You know what I mean? And so like, if you look at today and kind of the, just like the cult of like socially liberal pleasure seeking, right? Like polyamory and, you know, nothing really matters. Just um, seek pleasure, maximize, maximize your pleasure. This kind of dominant attitude right. in like urban socially liberal settings. Um, to me, I mean, these are people who are mostly, fixating on essentially meaningless things in this kind of endless cycle of, of, of a kind of repetition compulsion. Right. And I think Lacan's, Lacan's like larger theoretical model of what desire is, um, is very similar to Catholicism's larger theoretical model of what desire is, which is essentially an empty trap that's constantly going to uh, dissatisfy us. And I think in his own secular scientific way, he's trying to show us that and give us ways for like, uh, dealing with that. Does that resonate with your understanding of Lacan or do you have any other takes? <laughs> I mean, I'm not, um, I'm very interested in Lacan. I like audited a couple seminars on the ethics of psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. but I'm like extremely well read, but in other, I mean, it does feel like the way that he talks about, you know, the petite objet and the way that when you love someone, you like attribute, it's almost like they have like a treasure. Mm. I do feel that way about Catholicism very much. Actually, it feels like a treasure. <laughs> mm. And I have thoughts like that about it. Interesting. Right. But there's also this idea that the, the, the object, uh, the object uh, is this like empty thing also that it's, um, well, you just never have access to it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's interesting. It. Uh, so we have a super chat here from, that means like someone in the audience is throwing money at us to address their question. So, okay. The question is for you, Dasha. Do you have any advice for young former podcasters whose anti-retroviral treatments have failed and are now wasting away alone and unloved as they approach oblivion? (laughs) Do you have any advice for young former podcasters? whose anti-retroviral treatments have failed and are now wasting away alone and unloved as they approach oblivion. What are anti-retroviral treatments? I don't fucking know. Do you know that? <laughs> yeah. Can you Google it? Yeah. Um, we're going to Google it and we're going to, we're going to share the screen so people can just find like the Wikipedia page. I mean, I can piece together that it's like against retroviral <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, but I don't know what exactly that means. Oh, HIV. Oh, HIV yeah. Is it specific to HIV? Yeah, standard antiviral therapy consists of the combination of antiviral drugs to maximally suppress the HIV virus and stop the progression of HIV disease. That's um, onward transmission. Um, of HIV. Okay, so I guess I mean I don't know how to interpret this. I get some weird questions on here, but here's how I would interpret this: We have a person who um, has HIV, but their antiretroviral treatment. Uh, 
is not working. So I guess this is a young person who's whose HIV medicine is, is no longer working. So they're facing uh, some sort of terminal illness and now they're wasting away and uh, alone and unloved. Do you have any advice for this type of person? Um, to pray. <laughs> mm. Do you pray, Dasha? I do. Mm. I, um, I don't, yeah, I don't pray every day, but I try. I think I think prayer is very misunderstood. Like, I would love to hear how you see it. If you if you feel like talking about it, maybe you don't. For some people, like religion and this type of stuff is very personal, so no pressure to talk about it. But one one thing I'd say real quick, I think that's actually good advice. I think in a lot of contexts, uh, prayer is actually really good advice, especially because if you don't know about someone's unique situation, it's hard to give like specific advice. But really, you can never go wrong by praying. I think that's something that's cool about it. Is like. Um, I think if you think about it as this, like you're trying to communicate to God so that he gives you some favor, that's kind of dumb. I like, I don't think about it that way personally. I think that's kind of dumb. Um, but it's just an extremely wholesome thing to do. And what I think is the real logic of prayer that makes a lot of sense rationally, even if you're not into, if you don't believe in like supernatural stuff or whatever is, and I wonder if you agree with this, Tasha, is that um, simply by the real value of praying is all of the worst ways of dealing with something that you're not doing. Um, so like I see, so when I have issues like with my wife, for instance, let's say we're like, we're going through a difficult time in our life together or marriage or whatever. Uh, yeah. I have a like hyperverbal tendency to want to um, like talk it out and get to the bottom of it. But then I'd be and like, and try to fix it. Like I want to fix everything. But if you want to fix things too much, if you're too aggressive with that, you can like wear people out. You can wear yourself out and some things can't be fixed immediately. So like, that's just one example of like a normal way of trying to deal with something actually leads to bad consequences and it doesn't really work and you can go crazy that way. But when I had tried to have like a prayerful attitude, it just gives, I just, it basically says like, okay, I'll give my wife time and space. I'll be relaxed. I'll be patient. I will trust. I will trust that things will work out. And like when you pray, you know, I don't see it as like, necessarily asking for help or something. I think I'm not into that way of thinking about it. I think it more is like, I am doing what I can do to mount, to like maintain myself and keep myself based uh, yeah. with my relationship to God. Like, and that prevents me from doing other like anxious, like reactive, aggressive, or like overbearing types of other bad ways of dealing with the problem. What do you, what, what is your sense of prayer? Like, why do you, why do you like it or, or help you help people understand how you see it? Maybe. Um, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, I don't, <laughs> well, Marianne Williamson, I, I started praying when I read a return to love, which is a self-help book based on a course in miracles, which is like a new agey Christian workbook that was popular. I think in the seventies hmm. that Marianne did. <laughs> and she describes it actually very similarly, which is that like, um, when you're praying, you're like relinquishing, your autonomy or something to God and you are sort of acknowledging that it's like out of your control. Mm. And she, I mean, she says like she relaxation is sort of the terminology that she uses, but yeah, it is a kind of like meditative relaxing way of being present. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't, I'm, and then, yeah, and then trying to convene with God, not like in a way where you're obviously where you're asking him for a favor, but you're asking him to like do his will. Mm. You that's, know? that's, that's based. I like that. Do you, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not testing you on anything, by the way. Do you remember though, uh, Simone Vey's take on prayer? 
No. So she, I, I really like her attitude towards it. She says that prayer is just attention. Yeah. And to just give pure attention is is all that prayer is really. And I think that's that's really beautiful and and really accurate. So like in my example, just was one random example. If I'm having like really difficult problems with my wife or something like that, like instead of trying to fight with her or talk it out with her, or like wear ourselves out. Like when I like when when you say I'll pray for you or I'm praying for you or something like that, what that really what I really mean by that is I'm going to have you in my mind. Like I'm going to be paying attention to you, and I don't I don't think that that like causes some kind of like uh, telekinetic like uh, effect in like the order of empirical reality or something like that. But I do think that um, it's an intrinsically good thing to do to just give pure attention without judgment. And when you know that someone is giving you attention without judgment, you feel based. Like, so if I say, I'm Dasha, I'm praying for you. What that means yeah. is like later on today or tomorrow, like in some quiet moment when I'm, you know, communing with God or whatever, I'm going to have you in my mind and I'm not going to be judging with you. I'm not going to be judging you or anything like that. I'm just going to be, I'm going to be giving yeah. you attention. And then you go off and you know that sometime later I'm giving you attention that just feels good, right? Like it's empowering. It's like, it's like, it is, it is a form of real connection that is empirically real you know there's like a psychological effect there's a sociological effect even though there's nothing like supernatural happening that's my theory anyway yeah of course not yeah no that's beautiful well thank you what do you think about um i mean i i have a hard time with hell <laughs> oh okay so tell me tell me your hard time with it i just don't think there's anyone there i can't imagine that you know if god is like infinitely merciful certainly more merciful than I am, then why would he put people in hell? Mm. Right. So would you like, I don't want to, I don't want to like rant too much on this. Uh, you are the special guest, but would you like to know my, my like philosophy of hell or my interpretation of the Catholic notion of hell? Yes. Um, basically, I don't think that there's like some place you go when you die that's like filled with flames, you know, like I, this is the kind of model that people have in their minds. Um, I do think that hell is real in some sense. Uh, yeah, definitely. Like hell is real and, and it is a place you can go, but it, it's, uh, I see it as sort of like, I imagine myself like on my deathbed, you know, like if I'm, when I'm on my deathbed, um, yeah. you are gonna, you are gonna like think about the good you've done and the bad you've done. And I think about it as like, Knowing that you, if you know that you've done serious sins that you haven't atoned for, then on that moment before your deathbed, you're going to feel like shit for those sins. And then when you die, the, that last feeling of feeling like shit for all the bad that you've done is essentially going to be locked in forever. Not that you're like going to go to some place with flames necessarily, but the last, the last memory you have of living is going to be like your own guilt and your own like self-hatred for, for the, for the ill that you've done. So in some sense, like dying with that on your mind, it kind of gets locked in forever. That's like what I think is trying to be encoded by, by the notion of hell. But I don't know if that makes sense. I'm sure Catholics will tell me that's like stupid and uh, heretical, but that's kind of how I make sense of it. Right. I mean, what if you die in a mass shooting and someone just shoots you in the head? <laughs> well, you to reflect on yeah, for sure. But the homily last week at mass was about, yeah, about like how important it is that to go to confession as soon as you sin so that you're in a state of grace in case you die, <laughs> in case someone shoots you in the head and you happen to not have gone to confession, you have to go to hell. That seems crazy. That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> 
Right, right. Well, you know, there are a lot of stipulations actually in the in Catholic theology that you actually it's actually pretty hard to go to hell. You have to you have to do some really serious sins and you have to know that it's a sin and you have to basically be conscious of sinning against God. Uh, it's actually so when you actually look at all those stipulations, um, you can make a decent case that even under Catholic uh, philosophy that like stereo, like normal, normal people who are like who, who have never really like been exposed to the faith in any kind of serious way. You can make a good case that those people aren't going to go to hell because they don't really know what they're doing. They don't they haven't consciously sinned because they, they haven't basically had the choice in some sense. They don't go to heaven. Yeah, that's a tough. That's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I haven't solved all these things. <laughs> the cats told me that yeah, if you're like an Indian, you could say you're like an African baby or like a ditch digger or something, and you go you go to like limbo where you have access to like the maximum amount of pleasure that is you can achieve in an earthly realm, but you don't get the heavenly bliss. Hmm. Hell yeah. No. Well, I also think that heaven and hell are places on earth in some sense. And, uh, you know, I think like you could, people definitely can find themselves in hell, like on earth. Like, it, I mean, I think if people do like really, really bad things, um, yeah. they essentially can go to a place that is essentially what is described by hell, uh, in the scriptures, I think. And I think if you're a really, really good person and you actually work really hard to be a really good person, you can experience like heavenly delights on earth. I think so too. <laughs> We probably shouldn't talk too much about like weird Catholic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I could talk your ear off about it and I'm sure you could too, but uh, keeping in mind that probably only a part of our audience is Catholic. Maybe we can circle back to it, but maybe now we can also talk about like uh, weird, like easier, funner things. Yeah. Uh, so um, what about like uh, drugs? How about that? Like what kind of drug, what are your favorite drugs? Um, ketamine is my favorite drug for sure. Really? I've never done it. I've never done it. I've never been exposed to it actually. Um, it's cool. It's like a disassociative and like a mod. I, it's, it's hard to describe it. Make, I don't know. It makes me feel schizophrenic in a, um, pleasurable way. Okay. Um, is, is it like a, is it a holy experience? Um, no, okay. no, it's definitely not a holy experience. It's very like detached. It's, you know, it's detached or something. Mm. Um, Adderall on the other hand, <laughs> it can be a holy experience. I take Adderall every day, mm. um, but I guess it's not a drug. It's like medicine. Mm. Um, and then I don't smoke weed anymore. I like to get drunk. Why no weed anymore? Uh, the fear. <laughs> oh, really? It makes you, like, paranoid and anxious or what? I just, yeah. I didn't start smoking weed until I was, like, an adult, like, 18, like, college. And I really liked it for a long time. And then, yeah, just that thing happened that, where you can't do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, may, I might be able to. Hmm. Right. Just, yeah. I, I feel like people in New York do a lot of cocaine. Do you do cocaine or no? I have. Mm. I don't particularly enjoy doing it. Mm. I, pre I prefer Adderall mm. and ketamine. <laughs> um, I just never, like, I feel like no one has access to, like, actual cocaine. Mm. 
you know, in my milieu, mm-hmm. people reporting like baby laxatives and like poison and shit. Like, damn, you know, it's bad. It's not like I've only done. I think I've only done actual coke like once. Mm. It's like, oh my god, this is co- this is cocaine. <laughs> I feel like it's the worst drug, basically. Because it's so expensive and it only lasts a short time, and I feel like it's the, I actually I also feel like it's the most um, heretical drug, like the most anti-Catholic drug, because I feel like it brings out all of my most sinful uh, drives, and it brings it brings out my most sinful nature. I think. Yeah, it makes you a bad person. Mm. I mean, the real real coke is great, but it's hard to get. <laughs> oh, so you're saying like the the not real coke is what's bad? No, I think it's all, it all makes you a bad person. It makes you think that you're like, um, really interesting. <laughs> right. Right. So I'm curious, like what, what's your, what's your like daily life? Like, like what's the life of like, uh, pod, a podcaster for you? Like other than podcasting, when you're not podcasting, like what are you, what's like your, what's an average day in the life of you? Well, I'm an actress. Oh, right. Yeah. So do you do that? Like very, like aggressively or like full time? I mean, I go on auditions uh, mm. um, most days of the week. Mm. Um, or I go to my agency and I make a self tape or I, um, sometimes I'm shooting something, but, <laughs> um, so that my, that's like sort of how my life is organized. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. That's all right. Do you, okay. Do you, do you feel like something I was kind of curious about you? Like, how do you think that your, um, do you say Belarusian or Belarusian? What do you say? Belarusian. How do, how do you think your Belarusian background influences your, um, you know, kind of like political and social uh, style in, in your, your kind of like public commentary and your and your creative work, like as an actress, but also as a podcaster? Uh, because I feel like there's an interesting and kind of unique uh, tradition of like Russian women in America who, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know too much. I don't pretend to know too much about this, but I feel like there's an interesting tradition. Uh, so I think of people like Emma Goldman, for instance, uh-huh. um, you know, like listening to Red Scare, you guys were kind of making me think of like Emma Goldman a little bit. Obviously the politics are a little bit different, but you know, yeah. like there's a tradition of um, Russian women coming to the West not to conflate Bel- Belarusia with Russia, but you get my, you get my drift. Um, yeah. there's a tradition of Russian women coming to the West and kind of representing like a free speech radicalism. Um, do you, do you kind of locate yourself in that tradition or no? I've never thought about it that way, but that's nice. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder. Mean, Anna and I, we talk about how we share a Russian sensibility that I think is less attuned to like dualism. Mm. You know, I think that like, um, we're more comfortable in like a gray area mm. and that is something that I think is a distinctly Russian thing. Okay. Um, but yeah. And our cue senses of humor, obviously mm. and irony and everything. And that's has a, a Russian tradition as well. But could, could you turn the volume down on your computer a little bit? I think I'm hearing yeah. feedback. I'm hearing myself a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Cool. No big yeah, it's fine. No big deal. Um, okay. So I think now would be a fun time to do a little segment, which I've only recently introduced. Uh, it's like a little game I like to play. I only started this like last live stream, but are you up for it? Sure. <laughs> so the game is called Based or Cringe. 
And I'm just going to give you items like people or ideas, uh, places, concepts, whatever. And you all, your job is just to say based or cringe. So based basically means like, you know, um, you're into it and cringe means like, it's terrible. It's terrible. You're against it. Are you happy to do this? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. All right. So the first one is Alexander Dugan. Who's that? <laughs> okay. So the reason this is interesting to me is because he's a Russian political theorist, essentially. He's kind of um, probably the most powerful and influential Russian political thinker. Uh, he's very close to Putin and he has, uh, you know, a pretty significant body of work. People, you know, some people say he's kind of full of shit and it's not, it's not really legitimate. Uh, some people say he's like a, you know, he's like the, the mad genius behind Putin and like Russian. Guy? Say it again. Is he the nonlinear warfare guy? Ooh, nonlinear warfare. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not an expert myself. I was just curious since I would say in the West, he gets a bad rap. He's kind of seen as like a fascist, um, bad guy. But I was thinking since you have that kind of, um, you know, uh, Belarusian background, I thought maybe you'd have a different take on it. So you're also welcome to pass. So if you just don't know anyone, then you can just pass. (laughs) I don't get called a Nazi anymore than I already do. Yes. Yes. I was just, I was just curious. (laughs) Um, so, okay. Another one would be selective abortion of Babies that are likely to have Down syndrome. Um, cringe. <laughs> so are you are you generally not very cool on abortion, or how do you feel about that? I'm kind of curious. I, it, yeah, it's that's another Catholicism thing, <laughs> where I mean, I'm not I'm not pro life, I guess. Mm-hmm. I sort of have take the kind of the the lefty position that um, you know there isn't really a choice that like we need to like there's no like reproductive justice really mm-hmm. in the United States so it's not as if people have the choice to have children and that we can't have a meaningful conversation about abortion until they do but then also knowing what our like carceral state is like and I'm just I mean I'm not interested in like punishing people also right so but i think that it is a big decision i think it is akin to murder i think it's different because it's in your body you know personally i don't think that i would be able to have one or if i had to for whatever reason that it would be very very difficult um but i'm not yeah i'm not pro-life but the selective abortions of babies with down syndrome is cringy because i don't know which that seems like eugenics (laughs) I think that's a based answer. And that's my, I, I agree with that. I think I'm uncomfortable with that. Uh, how about Louis CK? Based. <laughs> Would you like to expand or? I mean, I'm publicly on the record as oh. uh, defending Louis CK many times. Um, I think that he's a gifted comedian. I think we knew what kind of man he was. I think he told us. And I think the reason that the backlash against him after his the me tooing is because it made people feel like hypocrites mm. mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i think that that's why it's so intense the vindictiveness is so intense for him even though he objectively didn't do anything that bad i think not bad at all <laughs> mm. okay by the way if anyone wants to suggest items in the chat i'm monitoring it so uh go for it if you want to um how about um Oh, I had actually had a 
I wrote some down. Um, how about uh, Pussy Riot? Oh, cringe. Oh, you're not a fan. No. So, so what's your th- what's your theory of Pussy Riot? Um, they don't stand for anything. Okay, I thought there maybe would be some like Russian solidarity there. No. No, no, they're whores. <laughs> mm. Like a lot, you know, tradition of Russian women being whores. Uh, Pussy Riot's living up to. I saw Pussy Riot recently at like a concert or in a dash that the hot one is mm. now like a tour. It has a touring outfit where she does like techno music and just really? you know the one that was like very political and became very famous a few years ago. Yeah, uh, that one. She's the, the hot one. She is hot though. She's gorgeous, of yeah. course. I don't hate that. Uh, I don't hate that part of her. Yeah. But okay. no, I think they, they don't really like their politics aren't meaningful. They just like. Interesting. Putin or the church. I was going to predict that you would have said based on Pussy Riot because I know you like Zizek and Zizek, I think, is buddies with that girl. Isn't she? Isn't he? she responded when she was a political prisoner. Yeah, I'm very jealous. <laughs> Why? Have you uh, tried to communicate with Zizek? No, I just, you know, I don't have a compelling political prisoner thing going for me. <laughs> we, could, we could probably fabricate one. Are you, are you like hoping one day Zizek is going to reach out to you? If you have some um, kind of like, the next time you're canceled, you're hoping like Zizek is going to come to your rescue? We really want to have him on the podcast. Um, that's something we've been strategizing towards for a while. We went mm. and saw, you know, I went to the Peterson Zizek debate in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think someone who worked for him reached out and said that they liked our recap up that she, he was going to get Zizek to listen to our episode, but I don't know if that ever panned out. Oh, so that's a good one. How about based or cringe Jordan Peterson? Cringe. Cringe. Uh, how about this based or cringe? Um, paranormal forms of communication, such as Ouija boards or telepathy or, um, seances. Okay. Um, well, I know it's a sin <laughs> mm. to use a Ouija board. Um, I don't know, based. Okay. I so, believe that Ouija boards are like a conduit to um, the afterlife, but I think that they're interesting. <laughs> okay. How how about A-chan, based or cringe? Oh, cringe, I guess. That's the one that's like 4chan, but worse. Yeah. I guess I have an unpopular opinion that I'm kind of, I think I'm more sympathetic to HN than other places. Like I do think that like frustrated young men should actually have a place to fuck around and not like not be harassed. Um, I think the idea that it generates mass shootings is probably overhyped. Uh, it could, it could, I don't have the data. I haven't like looked at studies. on. I don't think there, I don't, I'm pretty sure there are no good studies on it. So it's definitely plausible that it generates mass shootings, but um, it's far from obvious to me, and it's actually quite possible that maybe it kind of decreases mass shootings by giving them an outlet. So I think I, I tend to think it's pretty bad the way that these forums get shut down repeatedly because I'm, I'm more worried about what that does to young men who, who are constantly uh, being denied like public spaces to just like have their thoughts and and fuck around. I think posting isn't virtuous. <laughs> um, and I think... I, get, I mean, I can understand your point, for sure. But uh, mostly, I wish the internet didn't even exist. 
you know, Ooh. I think the internet was a mistake. <laughs> really? So you'd be happy, you'd be happy to let go of all of your internet projects and your, your that would mean no podcast essentially. You know, I'd be, it'd be a very different world, but you'd rather that world with no internet. I think I'd be happier. Okay. Interesting. So this leads to another good one based or cringe accelerationism. It sounds like you're a, a decelerationist. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't really know how I cringe, I guess. Right. So your, your, your instincts are kind of, we need to slow things down. Technology is generally going in a bad direction. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, couldn't you accelerate? Couldn't you achieve the same end by accelerating until, you know, Hmm. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I could see it. The idea isn't like to go, I'm not, I'm not a D. I don't want to go backwards. I just want something different. Okay. Okay. And are you a, uh, you're a Bernie supporter, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Just check. I, I I think I gathered that from the, what I was able to listen to of your stuff. I was just curious. And Marianne Williamson supporter. Yeah. So Marianne Williamson based. Very based. If, if she, if she was viable candidate, would you prefer her to Bernie Sanders? She is a viable candidate. Oh, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) But I, no, I have to, the, the right thing to do is to stand by Bernie, of course. Okay. Uh, based or cringe, uh, watching pornography. Mm. Um, cringe, but like a begrudging cringe. Okay. Yeah. I agree with that. (laughs) I'm, uh, the people I'm living with are like very kind of like, uh, sex positive and they have a lot of friends that are sex positives and they're psychologists. And so I've been like hanging out with very highly educated sex positive people lately. And they all kind of think that porn gets a bad rap and that porn is actually not as destructive as people say. And like the nofap community and the anti-porn people are just like ideological zealots who don't understand the data and that actually porn doesn't have any bad effects. Um, so, no way that's true. well, There's, some, yeah, some that's people, true. what's that? There's no way that's true. Some people, some people make that case. Um, like this guy, David Lay, who I was hanging out recently and, and Jeffrey and Diana are generally like, they, they think it gets a bad rap, but I definitely do think that, uh, I mean, I'm not like, this isn't like a major part of my identity. I'm not like a nofap, uh, representative or anything, but I, my intuitions are definitely in favor of that. Like, I think, uh, like in my life, the periods where I'm watching porn are like periods where I'm like not doing well as a person <laughs> generally. Um, I'm like not being a good person in general. And I'm like, usually that there's like other problems. Uh, like unwholesome porn. living, well, you know, I was addicted to pornography for 10 years. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So I, I hope this isn't like an overly sensitive no, question. No, it's okay. I'm vice. Um, and I did definitely had detrimental effects on my, you know, soul or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it is, I think it's like ubiquity is what is dangerous. Mm. Mm. And that's, changed culture probably for the worst i don't think i mean i don't i don't think it should be banned i guess per se i'm very yeah (laughs) so are you kind of libertarian a bit in your in your politics like you don't want to like overly police anything yeah Mm. okay i mean i'm not an integralist Mm. i just don't 
yeah, I guess I'm kind of, I'm like a little bit socially libertarian in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I'm, I'm kind of similar. All right. So yeah. la- last one, and then we can just go back to chit chatting about what, about whatever we feel like. Uh, the last one is Vladimir Lenin. Based. Based. Okay. So you're, you're into kind of like militant state takeover as a path to a better society. Um, yes. Okay. I advocate for violence. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. What, tell me more, tell me more about that. Like what, are there any forms of politi- like what, how do you draw the line? Like what forms of political violence are not cool and what kinds are cool? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I don't, uh, don't make, I don't know. I'm not gonna, I, I think that you don't have to. Yeah. I think that, um, I don't think Antifa is cool. <laughs> you don't think Antifa. So Antifa no. based or cringe? You say cringe? Big cringe. Hmm. Interesting. I would, uh, I would have thought that you were kind of like sociologically proximal to Antifa and therefore kind of sympathetic to it. So that's interesting that you disprove my expectations. Are you? I, yeah. I have aesthetic qualms with the Antifa movement. Um, I think it's- interesting. That's interesting, but you're cool with political violence to achieve, like, you know, revolutionary ends, but so, you're not cool like with Antifa violence. ideology. I see. I see. Do you? you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I used to do Antifa. Like, I, I mean, in some sense, I would still say I'm, I'm Antifa. Um, my take is that the, the problem now is that Antifa is applying itself to targets that don't make any sense. So, like, my attitude is that if neo-Nazis are marching down my street in my neighborhood, like, yeah, I think, like, able-bodied men should go out and, and meet them. Not necessarily fight them, but defend, you know, I think certain public spaces should be defended. Like, if, if there's a, a militant, violent group, neo-Nazis are, like, throwing bottles at, like, minority kids or something like that in my neighborhood. Like, yeah, I think uh, able-bodied good men should get together and go deal with that if the police aren't going to. That's like the basic logic of Antifa that I see and that I've always believed in and, and I have practiced in the past. Um, my, my take now is that uh, the problem is Antifa is targeting people who aren't even violent. So it's like I, I kind of realized this once uh, most clearly with like Milo Yiannopoulos. Like once Antifa was targeting Milo Yiannopoulos, I was kind of like, OK, something's terribly wrong here. Like this is this guy does not deserve or warrant a kind of like militant uh, physical resistance. Yeah, exactly. The threshold of what constitutes fascism is very flimsy. <laughs> yes, exactly. That So that's where my beef comes in. I think the basic logic of Antifa is defensible, but how they define it is cringe, super cringe. Um, all right. We got a super chat here from Pep Pep Step uh, for five bucks. <laughs> they want to know uh, over-the-counter steroids, based or cringe? Um, cringe, I guess. What's wrong with steroids? What's wrong with steroids? I feel like based on steroids, like, I I don't see why not. Responsible use. I would think, I would think about taking them, just get super jacked real quick. All of a sudden. It's just not my thing. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Cool. Um, They give give you acne, hormone, like, I don't know. They make you hormonally imbalanced and angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair, fair enough. I've kind of like been thinking about, I mean, not seriously, but I did have this kind of funny idea of, uh, not too long ago that uh, 
it'd be kind of funny to do like a YouTube video or like some kind of like live stream thing where I started taking steroids just like in a very controlled, responsible way. And I kind of, mm-hmm. I kind of said to my like audience, like, okay, here's what I look like now. Do like before pictures or whatever. And, uh, then take steroids for like a few months, get super jacked. And like, I think it'd be interesting for people to be able to watch it like as it's happening. Uh, I'm probably not going to, I'm not like really thinking about doing that, but uh, I get a lot of like weird ideas and that's kind of like one of them. On Instagram, we do that. Yeah. Uh, with st- actual steroids. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole community of like guys in Thailand who like just do sex tourism and get jacked up on steroids. Wow. Yeah. I would, I would think about it. I mean, I think there's probably a way to do it re- like responsibly, like small doses over long periods of time or like you cycle it on or off or whatever. Like, I'm sure there's a way to do it. That's not too destructive. Um, yeah. so yeah, I just waste away. <laughs> I'm um, not interested in getting bigger. <laughs> you remind me something I heard you say on a podcast last night that I was listening to was you were saying how like you don't like, uh, occupying like physical existence because you feel weak and everything feels so heavy. And that kind of, a, that struck me as like a fair, a somewhat Catholic thing to say also, you know, like, I have, a lot, I have a lot of contempt for like my body and I think that's healthy to like, I don't know, to, it's also Deleuzean actually. Do you read much Deleuze? Like Deleuze has this idea that, uh, you know, the virtual, yeah. what's that? Go on. <laughs> well, yeah, Deleuze has this, uh, really beautiful idea that the, what's actual is not, is not what's real, you know? So like my body, my skin, my muscles, whatever, like that's not real. That's a contingency. That's just an accident. Uh, you know, my history could have turned out slightly differently so that what you actually see um, could have been very different. Therefore, it's not real. What's actually real is the virtual. Um, and that's actually I think that's like, you know, that that kind of jives very much with 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 the Catholic attitude and your kind of statement about just kind of like not liking having a physical existence like that, that everything seems so heavy. And um, yeah. And I think that's because the true Dasha is not like the physical Dasha. The true Dasha is like the sum total of all of the Dashas that could ever possibly be like that. And, and I think we know that we could be so much more. There are so many infinite possibilities of what we could be. And that's the true that that's like our true life in some sense. It's only virtual, but that's what's real. Um, and that, that's like a very delusion idea. And I think, I think it's also like, um, a very Catholic and Christian idea that, um, you know, this, this physical stuff is just temporary, right? This earthly stuff is uh, quite contingent and it's not real. The, the real is, um, a kind of virtuality. What do you think about that? That sounds plausible. I mean, I guess I don't, what do you, what is, what do you mean by virtual? Meaning, um, abstract and, uh, kind of possible. It's, it's a kind of, um, what could be, but is not necessarily, you know, so like, um, we constantly go around with a sensibility of like what we could be like, uh, what we could do tomorrow. It's like a million possible things. Right. And, uh, what actually, what we actually become is only one possibility, but we actually inhabit what we actually inhabit is this lar- this much larger virtual sphere of, of, of what's possible. And there are, there are ways to kind of like unlock more um, like openness and flexibility and what we're able to do. So like a lot of people kind of get stuck in particular tracks, right? Like they, they see themselves a very particular way. They fixate on like their particular body or their particular mind. And at one yeah. point in time, right? Like we, we have this tendency to get trapped in these like ultimately contingent kind of meaningless earthly things um, but that's not like who we are, like what, who we are could be any number of things. And yeah, the, this delusion idea that the virtual is more real than the actual is, 
I think like a very, uh, a, a very like welcome and useful antidote to like quotidian secular attitudes towards like materialism, right? Like vulgar materialism, vulgar, vulgar materialism, which I think characterizes a lot of like popular, you know, lefty types of people like on the same. Yeah. yeah that feels like it's at odds with the materialist premise, which I do think is important. Hmm. Yeah. Because there is a lot of earthly suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, for sure. <laughs> that capitalism is responsible for. For sure. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, you know, for like Foxconn workers, they are trapped. <laughs> there isn't like a virtual dimension to their reality. There's just like the assembly line. Hmm. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Like, I, I definitely wouldn't push an ideology of like, oh, the Foxconn workers just have to think about themselves differently and then all, all will be fine. However, there is, you know, that's easy to make fun of. I mean, there's definitely a grain of truth to it. And again, this is like a very, um, you know, Catholic idea. Like Simone Weil talked a lot about how, you know, there is extraordinary dignity to be found in the most uh, kind of exploitative forms of labor, you know, and in some sense, there is this idea that, uh, it's a very Christian idea that the the lowest of the low are actually um, they're the ones who can tell the truth. And yes, and, and that's often they're often seen as holy. I think uh, for good reason, and you know that's hardly a compensation for their terrible suffering. It's not like calling them holy is to make them feel better and somehow to make up for their suffering. But it is actually true that like the downtrodden and the 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 most oppressed of the proletariat are actually closer to a kind of saintliness than normal like bourgeois people are and it's suffer you know it might suck for this time on earth but like there is a depth and there's a gravity to that that in fact like rich people and bourgeois people kind of don't often don't like especially if they're secular they don't have access to it uh, and so i don't know it's not it's not to justify any form of exploitation or suffering but there's something there that i think like secular quote-unquote materialist people don't don't respect definitely yeah no. and that's yeah but that's more because they're secular than, yeah, vulgar materialism, I guess, is what, is what you called it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. What else is uh, on your mind? Do you, I don't want to keep you too long. I think you said in our pre-chat that you had to go at 5. So, that gives us... Oh, yeah. I yeah. can do like 10 or 15 more minutes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, is there anything on your mind that we haven't got to cover that you might want to... Uh, throw on the table or anything you want to ask me about or some sort of debate or uh, well I want to ask about accelerationism oh yeah please do I don't really I just have a very um, for me like I don't have a good grasp on it (laughs) yeah sure sure so I mean you know what it refers to I know that it's about like accelerating obviously (laughs) capitalism to its logical end Right. That's the idea. Uh, well, okay. I'll give you the quick. I'll give you the quick kind of cartoon version. So the a lot of people, the kind of vulgar idea that's kind of most common and floating around the culture that a lot of people think accelerationism means is that you know the better the worse, essentially that you have to make capitalism worse and worse. You have to make capitalism more and more brutal, more and more intensified and and horrible because that will somehow magically like shoot us out to this other side that will be good. That that's kind of like the vulgar attitude. 
Um, yeah. I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the right way to think about it at all. Accelerationism does not require any type of like positive endorsement of exploitation or anything like that. Um, I, what I would say very quick briefly is that accelerationism is, accelerationism is a line of thought that runs from, uh, Nietzsche to Deleuze to, you know, through Marx also. Um, it's a, it's a tradition or a kind of lineage of thinking that basically sees capitalism as a kind of superhuman force that is not really um, available to our manipulations or tinkering. So it's not necessarily like um, that we, you have to endorse capitalism being increasingly exploitative. It's more acknowledging that this is a system that operates essentially over and above our heads. Capitalism uses humans as its raw material. It, it, it kind of guides us and tells us what to do in a way that we can hardly fathom, that we can't um, kind of get underneath of and control or manipulate. And so it's an acknowledgement of that as the empirical reality that capitalism is. It's not this thing that you can't like elect um, a, a leader or like overthrow the government to like somehow overthrow capitalism. That's just fundamental misunderstanding of what capitalism is. Capitalism is a system. Um, it's a kind of uh, self-escalating type of collective uh, super intelligence in some sense, like the price mark, the price system, for instance, like the price system tells us what to do in some sense that we don't, it, it operates over and above our desires. It kind of structures what it is possible for humans to do. So there's no question, there's no question of like manipulating it or changing it through any type of activist means. All there is to do is to, uh, is to go through it. And that doesn't mean like, oh, we need to make it more brutal. Brutality is good. Exploitation is good because it'll get us out to the other side. No, you can still say that capitalism is unjust. It's inhumane. It's exploitative. It's horrible. Um, but the accelerationist attitude is that you have to kind of confront that horror as an empirical reality and not not get anxious and freak out and try to change it in ways that don't actually work. That's that's my that, that that's my take on it anyway. And, um, you know, there are good reasons to believe that. Marx did actually think that, you know, Marx had a complicated viewpoint that is very debatable. And, and that's why I think people are still talking about it so much today. Um, but there are many traces in Marx that basically say um, you have to let capitalism run its course. There's no way to essentially change it. And that communism or socialism is uh, what is going to come after it af as we allow it to run its course. And Deleuze and Guattari are famous for saying um, through Nietzsche that um, they, they offer a kind of radical politics, a kind of radical leftism that doesn't really try to stop or overthrow or resist capitalism. Um, in what way? What about his ideas about like the will to power? Um, well, I think what Deleuze and Guattari are really trying to show us is that there is a way of thinking about capitalism and there's a way of kind of organizing one's life under capitalism in a way that, uh, well, resistance is resentment, essentially. Like if you're trying to stop capitalism, you're basically being motivated by resentment. It's not going to be possible. It's not going to work, first of all. But also, yeah. you're, you're essentially cultivating um, like very base, uh, reprehensible drives, essentially. And so, if you can simply have the kind of psychological and and uh, personal and and collective, you know, sociological, like in your friend groups or whatever, like if you can create situations, if you can create living, uh, breathing situations in which no one is trying to stop capitalism. You're not trying to resist it because you don't, you know, you don't, you don't need to, you don't have that resentful kind of drive um, yeah. that there are ways to kind of live under capitalism or navigate kind of bourgeois capitalist institutions in a way that tends to overthrow them by kind of overheating them. So does that make a little bit more sense? So it's not necessarily in, in practice. What does that look like? 
in practice, what it looks like is, I think it involves a few things and taken individually, they sound a bit trite. Like it, 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 people will kind of make fun of this for being a little bit too like commonsensical because people want to think that Deleuze is this like very magical, like uh, philosophical thinker. But I think it does actually boil down to fairly concrete things. Like one is um, being radically honest as a kind of like starting point. So like the moralistic opposition to capitalism, trying to stop capitalism or overthrow, overthrow it or whatever, it's essentially based on lies. Like it's, it's lying about what the nature of capitalism is. And I think a lot of left-wing activists are actually ex- pretty explicit about this. Like they say things like, you know, we need to create discourses that motivate people and make people hopeful so that they join our group so that then we're able to like create change. But at the bottom of that is essentially a kind of dishonest, attitude. It's, um, you know, there's a kind of strategic dishonest core to that. Whereas the accelerationist kind of revolutionary politics that I believe in or subscribe to is a very Deleuzean one in which you say, no, we can be radically honest about capitalism. I'm not trying to make some movement. I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm not trying to sell you these like fancy ideas about how me and my organization is going to somehow like you know, create equality and like solve everyone's problems because that's a disingenuous gesture. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to be radically honest about what capitalism is. I'm going to be radically honest about myself and my capacities and the people around me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on creating uh, like new forms of life. In other words, like concretely with my, with myself and with the people around me. And when you actually have a bunch of people, like even a small group of like three people, let's say who are not lying to themselves or each other, and they're not resentful. They're not trying to overthrow capitalism because that's impossible. They're just basically honest and they're not resentful. New possibilities open up that you didn't even know were like you, that group is suddenly able to create new things. It's able to have effects on the larger social fabric in a way that it didn't even realize so long as it was trapped in this kind of like resentful anti-capitalist kind of kind of model. So, you know, Deleuze is fond of, of quoting Spinoza and saying that, you know, we don't we never know what a body can do. You know, what we are, what we're capable of doing, we don't know the full extent of it. We can't know the full extent of it. So, right. so like what you have to do is you have to start local. You have to start in a micro molecular way. You have to start with just what's around you. You start with your sense data. You only focus on like being honest, being anti resentment. And from there, new possibilities open up. And I genuinely believe that what Deleuze and Guattari were really trying to say is that if you do that, you're able to then create larger and larger effects and consequences. And so um, you can, in the long run, have profound revolutionary effects on capitalism and institutions and the larger social fabric. But it's ironic. It's an ironic pathway. It's like you to, to really affect the course of capitalism, you can only get to it through a pathway of not trying to change it, of, of being basically at peace and uh, developing like creativity. It's all about, it's all about essentially, uh, creativity and you get to creativity through, through a kind of radical honesty and, um, that type of, that type of attitude and then building it up with the people around you. So that's, I mean, that's a very idiosyncratic take. Like I'm not, it's not like the textbook definition of accelerationism, but that's, that's how I take it. Um, so that's why I still kind of see myself as a revolutionary and as a radical leftist. I just have no interest in anything currently existing as left-wing activism because it's all based on resentment, I think. And it's all, uh, it's all based on telling yourself a variety of different lies. And I think we, sure. yeah, so that, so that, that's my thing. Like we, we don't know what we're capable of as a, as a Liberal group. Feminism is very much about resentment as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I could see, yeah, I mean, Red Scare is about <laughs> being honest in a, in a radical way, I think. 
Definitely. I got, I definitely got that vibe from you guys from listening to you guys. And don't you have the sense that like when you do that, especially when you do that with other people, things start, things start to become possible that you didn't know were possible beforehand. And yeah. I, that's what I think anyway. And I think that's what Deleuze and Guattari were trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like if we, if that type of thing could take off at, at a society level, I think it's absolutely plausible that that would have essentially a very profound traditional revolutionary, you know, according to the traditional model or expectation of what revolution involves. I think you can absolutely imagine that being a kind of longer term consequence of this kind of like Deleuzean accelerationist becoming um, where you go with the flow instead of going against the flow. That's that's kind of like how I would summarize accelerationism and why um, it's not like this uh, capitulationist fatalist. Um, kind of like necessarily pro-capitalist attitude, which a lot of people think it is like, no, you just accept what is real. You accept reality. You don't tell lies and uh, you focus on molecular, you know, what Deleuze and Guattari call molecular becomings. So um, sorry, oh. someone in the chat said that uh, you want to be uh, mansplained too. And so if that was mansplaining, I'm either sorry if you don't like that or uh, there you go. If that's what you actually I like. Love being mansplained too. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Cool. So thank you. That was informative and resonant with me. Um, I was going to bring up something. Oh, well, Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return. Mm. It mm-hmm. sounds like what Deleuze is talking about. Hell yeah, definitely. That's that's spot on. He, uh, Deleuze, yeah. talk, Deleuze talks a lot about the eternal return. Do you have a, do you have a take or? Well, I could, no. man, I could man, I could mansplain a little bit on that if you'd like, but I don't want to impose. I know about the well. I guess how do you consolidate an idea like eternal recurrence with Catholicism? Mm. Oh well, I don't think that's too hard, uh, honestly. So what Deleuze says, so Deleuze has this reading of of Nietzsche and the eternal return, where he says he talks about it as a dice throw that the the eternal recurrence or the eternal return is this dice throw. And there are essentially two stages to the dice throw. The first is throwing the dice, um, where you're kind of embracing the, you know, the, the, uh, inescapable nature of chance. Like, you know, we are, we are a lot of the universe is just random. Right. And that's the first, the first part of the dice throw or the eternal recurrence is, is chance. And then the second part though, is you, the dice lands, and then you have to accept whatever, whatever head turned up, right? If, it, if it's a one, you have to accept it's a one. If it's a two, you have to accept that it's a two. So that represents necessity. So, so the eternal return is this two-stage process of throwing the dice and then accepting the necessity, accepting fate, in other words. Um, right. And that the eternal return is this idea that uh, of perpetual, constant dice throwing. Like you have to be able to affirm that life is essentially a throw of the dice that involves this two-stage process of, of chance and then, and then necessity. So... I think that's absolutely consistent with the kind of Catholic uh, perspective because like who I am, for instance, what I was saying before about the reality of my, of my personhood, for instance, like I have a particular kind of skin. I have a particular, you know, I'm a particular height. Like I have this body, right? Um, That's actual, but it's not real. It's, it's actual, but it's not, it's not the reality of who I am because the reality of who I am is virtual, but I have to still affirm this chance vehicle that I have been placed in. So my life, you know, everyone's life is filled with all these chance contingencies and to have a good well, it's life. Random, it's the chance contingencies. It's the randomness that feels to me like at odds with, you know, the world being divinely held. Oh, right. But yeah, no, the, I see. I see the tension there. But I don't think I don't think it's um, I don't think to, uh, a good Catholic has to affirm that every single detail was 
kind of planted there on purpose by God. Like you affirm God, you affirm the existence of a kind of like creator God, a kind of prime mover, right? Um, but I don't think it's heretical to say that chance plays a role in in the unrolling or unfolding of the universe. Maybe a better Catholic can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that it's necessarily heretical to say that chance. And I think it's consistent with what I was saying before about how like in the in a Catholic perspective, our bodies are like these these are all just material earthly things, right? Like they're not that important. That's what I mean by chance. Like you know, the fact that I'm the fact that I'm on this podcast with you today, Dasha, is a relative. There's chance occurrence. It, it could have happened that, you know, we didn't get to have this conversa- conversation today. Um, but the, the larger implication here is that um, from these chance occurrences, from this meaningless kind of earthly um, actualities that define our contingent lives, we affirm them as fate. We, we treat them as if they were necessary. And the ability to the ability to do that is where the Catholic kind of uh, the Catholic sensibility kind of comes comes in the back door. And then it makes more sense to me because um, so like I acknowledge that there is a random factor that means we could have or could have not had this conversation today, you and me. But because we did now, I affirm that it could not have been otherwise, that this is a part of my destiny and 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 to genuinely believe that all of the chat, the chance occurrences after they happen to affirm that it could not have been otherwise and that you would not want it to be otherwise. So all the good, all the bad to live as if to believe as if to have faith as if all of that was absolutely preordained and necessary and could not have been otherwise. That's a kind of conscious uh, decision that we make. That is essentially the same decision of, um, of being faithful of, 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 of living a devout life. It's a, it's a very similar type of structure. You acknowledge chance, and you respect the, the role of chance, but then you treat it as if um, you have faith that it could not have been otherwise. What do you think of that? That sounds plausible. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I think about a lot that I haven't, it's not totally fleshed out, but in light of like Lacan and Catholicism, I am constantly being reminded of like, um, my training as an actor. Oh yeah. And most, yeah. And one of the most meaningful things I learned about acting was like, when you are saying doing a play that it's sort of like what you're describing, like a number, you have to act as if a number of things are possible an infinite number of things are possible. Mm. But what happens in the scripts is just sort of, you have to act as if it's happening for the first time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting from that perspective that, that I, I see the, I see the resonance there for sure. Yeah. You know, you've read the script, you know, it's in the play, you've done it, the play every night, but like every night you have to, every night you do the play, you have to act as if an infinite number of things could happen on stage mm. and the things that occur, occur by, by chance. Right. Anyway. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's really cool. That has a very Nietzschean uh, and Deleuzian. My undergrad thesis on Nietzsche. Oh yeah, really? What was the thesis? Um, I said that um, he wasn't. Basically, it was like misogynist critiques of Nietzsche aren't founded in that they're like not not only uncharitable, but they like ignore like really important tenets of his philosophy. Based, very based. <laughs> yes, correct. Um, amen to that. Mm-hmm. People are giving me mad shit in the chat right now. Everyone's saying like, uh, Justin doesn't really believe in God. Justin, if you're Catholic, you have to believe in God. 
And uh, yeah, well, you know what, motherfuckers, I do believe in God. Uh, maybe your understanding of God is not as sophisticated as you think it is. Look, uh, for instance, like Christian faith affirms free will, right? So like it is not a deterministic model in which like God plans out every detail that would contradict free will, which is a really essential aspect of of the Christian faith. So like that's a similar that's very similar to the role of the dice, to the dice throw or the eternal recurrence like um, I have to believe that I right now, like when I'm done with this podcast, I could get up and go do many different things. Right. I have, I have some choice in that. Right. Um, God's God's not determining that. That's a very Christian belief. OK, so go fuck off. I do believe in God, even if I do believe in uh, freedom and uh, uh, the role of chance in in, you know, earthly affairs. So, yeah, if you don't like my life, what's that? <laughs> I believe you. I couldn't believe how much hostility I got when I came out as Catholic. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. I really didn't see that that one coming. From Catholic people or from like secular people? Oh. Mm, yeah, I think right now most of the hate is coming from like Catholic people. Who, uh, man, the people in this chat is probably it's probably so uh, it's quite a mix. It's like probably Red Scare fans, some Red Scare fans, some Catholics, uh, some I guess I guess of my audience. But uh, anyway, okay. I need well. I need to. Uh, I need to not get too distracted by them. I held out for quite yeah, a while. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, okay, cool. Was there, um, so something I, so as, as we wind this down, um, something I like to ask people is, uh, I take a, I take a cue out of Benjamin Franklin's practices. Benjamin Franklin had this, uh, social club and he has this list of questions. You can actually look them up on Google and, uh, Every, every time they had a social gathering, they would go over this long list of questions. And some of them I think are very wise. And so I know you don't have too much time, but I would like to close with just one or two things if that's okay. Uh, I think they're very wholesome and uh, I hope that you might like them. So maybe we'll just do two and then I'll let you go. So uh, one would be, um, is there anything that you're struggling with that you maybe would like opinions about or advice on or um any type of input whatever like any type of is there anything that me or the people gathered here all the people watching is there anything that we as a group could help you with right now that you would like to ask of us oh um (laughs) i wish i had i wish i had something i mean i did i wanted to talk about catholic i mean i wanted to talk about catholicism and lacan and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. It's not, I don't know. I worried about paying my taxes. <laughs> I don't know. I just like, I struggle with like just very rudimentary life things, unfortunately, mm. but I don't I think I'm beyond help. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, if you ever need any help with anything, don't hesitate to ask me or, uh, my audience. I will. And okay. So the second one real quick is, um, is there anything about this live stream and this podcast setup and system that I have that I've run you through now that you think could be improved upon just any, any feedback at all on the experience? Like, was this enjoyable? What could have been more enjoyable? Are there certain things I did or said that you didn't like that I I could improve upon, uh, or any feedback at all? I think the video element would be, would be cool. Yeah. What do you mean would be like to see the person you're talking to? 
Right, for sure. Yeah, definitely. We'll get there. It's like more technically, com- it's yeah. more technically complicated than we can manage right now with like the all, all the yeah. gear. But people will be interested to know that I am locally recording the video. So I don't want to get people's hopes up, but there is a possibility that sometime in the next few days, we'll be able to piece together a, a reconstructed video conversation with you and me both having video. It's possible. I'm not sure it's going to be possible, but um, yeah. So that's a good, that's a good bit. Any, anything else I, I should be aware of anything? I had a great time. Did you? Are you just being nice? No, I did. Don't fuck with me. It was a good conversation. I'm glad I learned about, um, to lose. <laughs> well, I think you're very nice and you're very fun to talk to. I think that, uh, the accusations you get of like being a fake Catholic or like you seem sincere to me. In other words, I think those accusations are wrong. Like, I think it's complicated, especially in today's like modern secular world. Um, it's really hard to like think through how to be religious. Like if you go from being secular to being, to wanting to be more religious, the feeling that religious calling, it, it's very hard to navigate that. It's confusing. It's hard to make sense of things and it takes time. Like I haven't figured it out at all fully. And, uh, you know, like I think it heaven requires relinquishing certain like earthly things anyway. So, yeah, for sure. And it's a process and it's confusing and it's difficult. So it seems like you're just being the vibe I get from you is that you're very sincere in your kind of increasing um, kind of Catholic devotion, but it's a process and you're kind of in the middle of it to some degree. Is that fair to say? Definitely. Yeah. yeah so I think like you're being honest about not knowing everything and not knowing exactly like when you said you like at one point before you admitted that you're like, yeah, I'm kind of ironic, I guess about it. But I don't take that as like, I take that as you just being frank and honest about the fact that like, you know, you're not trying to be like, a super rigorous, like you're not trying to act like you're a super good Catholic who knows everything. You're being like honest about the fact of how you're coming to it all. Ironies in Catholicism. Ooh, I would love to hear more about that if we had more time, but I won't, I won't, I won't open a new can of worms. So, um, all right, we got a few last messages. Someone just wanted to say that they wish we talked about wobble palace. Sorry. We didn't have enough time for that. Nothing. Maybe another time we can talk about it. And, uh, Jacob Lyles says hi and puts a heart, um, so thanks to everyone for hanging out. Dasha, I will uh, let you go now. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll be in touch Bye. with you. I'll, I'll see you on the interwebs. Bye. See ya. All right. Cool. So what did you think, folks? Thanks for hanging out, as always. If you're here from Dasha's web, you know, part of the web, uh, go ahead and subscribe if you thought that was all interesting. And if you didn't, if you're one of the people in the chat who think, I'm not very cool. Well, then you don't have to come back. Uh, but to those of you who, uh, you know, come to all my hangouts, thank you very much for coming to this one. I hope you enjoyed it. I thought that was cool. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, she seemed cool. Um, I think she's the type of person who like, she just is who she is. And, uh, like the, the Dasha that I got from listening to some of the podcasts yesterday is the same Dasha that showed up today. And I think that there's just like a certain type of person who like just, they are what they are at all times. And I think that confuses people because the fact is that humans are very like variable, you know, like I can just be who I am at all times, absolutely consistently and sincere and sincerely, but that's going to look very different at different times. It's going to sound very different at different times. I'm going to say different things that contradict myself on the surface. Uh, but in fact, there's like one authentic core at the bottom of it. Um, and I think that just confuses people because there's a lot of variant, there's a lot of variability. So that's what it seems to me that she's like. Like if you look at her different 
profiles and you know public output or whatever you get a very you get a like a you get a very mixed set of signals in some sense so like it's kind of enigmatic you're not sure exactly who she is but i think that's what real people are like they're kind of enigmatic it's hard to know exactly what they think about a bunch of things um but the the telltale sign of it is you know uh you can kind of just feel and see and sense that you know they're just they're not really trying to present anything in particular they're just they're just saying what comes to them and they're, they're giving you what they feel in that moment. And there is going to be a long-term consistency to that. That's so that's the vibe I got from her. She seemed like very uh, genuine and authentic. And I think the people who like give her shit for like a fake Catholicism, I think it's not, it's not fair. I, I got, I got uh, a very sincere kind of vibe from her and that was fun. I, I appreciate it. Any thoughts, questions, uh, comments at all. Someone says in the chat, someone says buy Justin's book. Yes, that's right. I'm writing a book. It's called Based to Lose. I don't want to promote stuff like while I'm talking to people, you know, but uh, yes. Um, also, if you want to join the Discord server, you're more than welcome to. There should be actually there may or may not be an invite link beneath. If, there, if there's not, we'll add one. Um, huge thanks to my patrons. As always, I couldn't be doing this without them. So, um, yeah, if you want to become a patron, there's like a bunch of cool stuff on Patreon and in my uh, hard drive that I share with people. What else? Anything else? Uh, ben, I'm pretty happy with the tech setup. Mm-hmm. I think it came together as well as we could. For, for people who don't know, Ben and I spent like all day yesterday uh, trying to get a setup where we could do, we could bring in the audio and all, like we could bring in the video of Dasha at the same time as doing the live stream. We tried every fucking way possible and uh, it's just really hard. Uh, YouTube recently shut down the Google Hangouts feature. So for those of you who've been watching my stuff for a while, that's the method that I've used uh, for all that time. And uh it was very nice. It was, you know, very simple and not very sophisticated, but it worked. And it was a way to do video sharing on for both people. They just shut that down. So, and we're investing in like a better tech setup. So, um, we did everything we could to try to replace that kind of, uh, shared video live streaming. But I think there aren't many solutions for it right now. And, uh, yeah, so we weren't able to do it, but, uh, I do have the video, um, recording locally. So yeah, hopefully I'll be able to piece that together. And uh, if you weren't able to catch all of this, it, the audio will be put on the podcast in the next few days. So uh, it'll probably go to the Patreon podcast first. And then uh, after a week or two, it'll go to the, um, uh, the, the main public feed or whatever. So uh, what do you think? I'll take a few questions or comments. Was there any kind of interesting stuff in the chat that I should be especially... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Pay attention. Um, someone says, Justin, how do you not know how to pronounce Pegu if he says the name in the intro to each of his videos? Did you not see a video of him yet? Yeah. I have never watched any of his videos. He's just been recommended to me many times. So I reach out to him. Um, any, any, any last questions, comments, folks, anything, whatever. Jim Johnson says, Justin is so uncool. It's cool. Thank you. I'll take that. I'll absolutely take that. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm like corny and stupid, like a dad kind of, even though I'm not a dad yet. Um, I'm content with that. I'm not trying to be cool. And you know what? Yeah, there is something cool to that. There's something cool about not trying to be cool. So thank you, Jim Johnston, for understanding me. It feels so good to be understood. I wonder, I really do wonder what Dasha thought about like the, the, the live stream and the, mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, like my vibe or the stuff that I'm interested in. Cause I wonder if she was, just, yeah, I just wonder, like, I'm always, 
I always want to know this when I'm done live streaming with someone is like, I always want to know, I want to see into their head and know like their honest impressions of, of things. Of course, people are nice and cool. So they're, you know, they wouldn't, um, you know, talk shit to my face anyway. We'll see. We'll see if Dasha talks shit about the Justin Murphy live stream afterwards. No, I doubt it. She seemed cool. Um, Chris Wright says Justin is projecting his own insecurities right now. I don't know. Probably. Um, Let's see what else we got. Was there anything that... uh, People keep saying the name Michael Malice. I'll see. I'll see. Let's see. People were saying that I was flirting with her. Oh, yeah. Were there a lot of people saying that? I think that's it was obviously false. Yeah. Um, do you think that? What that you? Were yeah. Person? No, I didn't see. No, that. definitely not. Um, someone says I think Sharia law would help Dasha. <laughs> uh, someone says uh, Dasha's going to shit on me on the next Red Scare. Nah. I mean, honestly, beef is good for business. So if she wanted to start talking shit on me. I mean, I would not expect that of her. She seemed cool. And uh, so I would not expect that of her, but beef is good for business. So Dasha, if you're listening, wink, wink, you could, you know, talk a little shit if you want to. I don't mind. I don't mind a little controversy. could be fun. Um, That's true. Arsenia says, we talk shit about you in this chat all the time. Is that not enough, Justin? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I'm very used to people talking shit about me. The chat is like 90% people talking shit. But hey, you're the ones watching me, motherfuckers. So, uh, <laughs> still got 115 views right now. Still got 115 views? Yeah. All right. So, that means all the people who came here for Dasha yeah. have decided to stay. I'm that entertaining? Well, I should make the most of that then. What should we talk about? Oh, uh, no, we're at 109, but still. Yes. That's good. Yeah. If you're here for the first time, do subscribe. Um, I'm going to be starting to get way more guests uh, of a kind of wider variety. So uh, I'm already working on that and have some, have some good leads. Uh, we also, what else, what else is um, on the agenda? I'm also hoping to upgrade the audio a little bit uh, sometime soon. We like don't have that yet. We don't have the mixer and stuff like that yet. So we're, we're probably going to improve that aspect of it also. Oh, my roommates have asked me to talk quieter. I definitely forgot to that this time. So uh, <laughs> sorry, roommates. I'll talk quieter now. Um, yeah, I wish like the people who liked my shit talked more in the chat. <laughs> you know, I, I honestly don't care. I'm so immune to people talking shit, but, um, I mean, I know there are lots of people out there who love all my shit cause they send me emails and stuff like that, but they never say nice things in the, in the chat. Yeah, like, maybe no, some fun. of them do to be fair. Like some people are right now, like nothing. Thank you. Nothing. You're being nice. Thanks for the super chat. Also, uh, some people are saying nice things, but, uh, someone uh, asked what's your podcast normally about. That's a good question. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Well, my podcast is usually just the audio recordings of the live streams. And then sometimes other things, like if I give a talk somewhere that's like on philosophy or political science or whatever, I'll put the audio on the podcast. The audio from these talks goes on to the podcast. Um, I talk mostly about science, social science and politics and psychology and philosophy and theory. Right now I'm talking a lot about Deleuze because I'm writing this book about Deleuze. It's called Based Deleuze. 
So that's like my main full time. That's like the thing I'm focusing on right, right, right now. So my head is very much in the books of, of Deleuze and I'm writing about that. So most of my, a lot of my videos recently and the podcast also has had a, a few things about Deleuze. Um, yeah, it'll kind of fluctuate based on, on what I'm working on, but you know, the vibe you got from the show is, is very much like what the podcast is like too. So, um, what else? Someone said that I earned my small following by covering bronze age pervert. Um, I don't know. No, that's not how, I mean, I gained some following from that. That was like pretty sensational, but, uh, no, that's definitely like a relatively small portion of my following Wait, you had a podcast with him no not i didn't have a podcast with him do you know who that is bronze age pervert um i made videos i there was just like one weekend where i i uh flirted with like conspiratainment videos Mm -hmm. i made a three-part series that was basically like a conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory entertainment video about bronze age pervert and like who is bronze age pervert Mm -hmm. and i spun out this like big conspiracy theory about uh, who was uh, like really pulling the strings behind nice. Bronze Age Pervert. And it, it, and it was a bit of a, I wouldn't say viral, but like a mini viral kind of thing on YouTube. And I guess I did get a lot of, I got a lot of YouTube followers from that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, how did the uh, tech go on this one? Perfect. All right. Good, good. Yeah, we were stressed about the tech because we spent all day working on it. And we were at times like kind of worried if it was not going to come together at all. So... Uh, All right, folks, thank you so much for hanging out. Please do subscribe and also leave a comment. Give me some feedback, what you thought was cool, what you thought was not cool. I I actually do read most of it. So, um, yeah, I'm a bit brain fried, so I'm going to call it a day. Oh, also my uh, friend and colleague and roommate is going to use the YouTube like video studio we have here now. So I actually do have to wrap it up. So, uh, yeah, thanks to the patrons. Join the Discord server if you want. I'll put a link below. And, uh, yeah, thanks, everyone. It's been fun. And big thanks to Dasha. So And thank you, Ben, for your technical support. All right. See you, folks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.